0: You are listening to the Rethinking Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm a former pastor turned brewer with a deep love of theology and philosophy. While I don't always wear the label comfortably, Christianity seems to be baked into who I am. I've found a home within the world of process relational thinking and have made close friends with the mystics. So whether you're a devout believer, a questioning skeptic, a bold atheist or simply someone trying to figure out what it means to be human, you belong here. Thank you for joining me and taking the risk of entering into this sacred space and thank you for reminding me that we aren't alone on this journey. Let us imagine a better way to be human together. Shall we begin? Hey friends before we get into our episode today I wanted to tell you about a fun event coming up that I will be at, a live event called God After Deconstruction. At this live event, Trip Fuller and Thomas J. Ord, both friends of the podcast, will describe the realities and challenges of deconstruction. We all know that many of us are walking away from church and or God, and we have some pretty good reasons, right? The old ways of thinking make little sense, and the hurt is very real. This conference proposes better ways to think about God because a sensible view oriented around open and relational theology is possible after we deconstruct the irrational and harmful views so many of us have been offered. Fuller and Ord are joined by thought leaders Catherine Keller, John Tatominal, Bruce Epperly, Alexis Lilly, and others to explore deconstruction and the open and relational and process view of God. The event begins at 7 p.m. on Friday and concludes, rather, at 5 p.m. on Saturday with an invitation to an informal meal thereafter. This event is sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology and Homebrewed Christianity and hosted by the Theological School at Drew University. Joining these are the podcast co-sponsors Radical Love, Yours Truly, Rethinking Faith, War Machine, and The New Evangelicals. If you would like to grab tickets, you can find them on Eventbrite. Just search God After Deconstruction Drew University. Again, that's February 9th through the 10th of this year. I hope to see you all there. All right, friends, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And Joining me today, I have Nia and Katie Karamonti. Welcome.
1: <laughs> Hi. Thank you. you. Thanks for
0: having us. Yeah, it's it's nice to, to see you both again. Um, just a little bit of background for uh, listeners, I guess. I was introduced uh, to both of you by a mutual friend, Trey Pearson, mm-hmm. at Full Tilt, R.I.P., (laughs) for Mm -hmm. like a concert that Trey played there uh, when I still worked at Full Tilt. So, um, yeah, it's exciting to to see you both again. Yeah, great.
1: It's great to be doing something fun.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. Well, I know recently uh, you both got to have a cool and fun experience where you went to L.A. and did like a premiere and all these cool things, and now you've been relegated to... Talking to some dude in his attic with a microphone. (laughs) So, you know, it's not quite the same experience, but I'm gonna do my best to, you know, try to live up to the the fun Hollywood hype. These are these are our favorite conversations. These
1: are our favorite conversations. (laughs) I mean, I didn't get dressed up for this one, but it is more fun to be doing it in my bedroom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right on. Well, I guess. Just for starters, maybe introductions would be helpful just um, for our listeners. so uh, if you both would just maybe say a little bit about who you are and and what you find yourself doing, I guess.
1: <laughs> All right, great. Well, uh, I'm Katie Karamontnti. My pronouns are she her. And what do I find myself doing? Uh, a little bit of writing, a little bit of uh, teaching. And a lot of bit of waiting to see what's next. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, all right. <laughs> very concise. Oh, I guess yeah, very concise. Uh, I'm Nia Carmont. pronouns are she, her. I, you know, you asked this question. I immediately went back like dark and stormy night, like <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> trying to trying to whittle it down. Um, but yes, I uh, professionally am a human resources director. Um and writer, I guess as well. Uh and yeah, we've been involved in a lot of stuff lately. So just kind of seeing where everything takes us, um, with a, a book and a film and and going from there.
0: Yeah, sweet. It seems uh you both have kind of taken your life and gone very uh public recently, right? With uh mm-hmm. a book coming out uh soon or yeah. Depending on when the stairs, it should be coming out soon. Um, in March, I believe. Yes. I May. May close. Okay. It, I know it started with an M. Uh, okay. <laughs> called embracing queer family, learning to live authentically in our families and communities. And also, there was a documentary on Hulu that just came out. Uh, that both of you were featured in called We Live Here, the Midwest, which uh-huh. um Noel and I uh watched last night. Uh, and that right. was really fun to watch. Yeah. So congratulations on both of those things. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it's it's been fun.
0: Mm -hmm. So I I don't know where I want to start because we could talk about, because I mean, both of them are very interconnected um, and overlap. Um, But I don't know. I think so here, how about how this one thing that I constantly say, and probably listeners are like, Josh, I already know what you're going to say. It's annoying. Stop saying it. Um, but I really believe in the power of story. I think story is powerful and um in life we kind of have this invitation to go deep enough into our own stories that other people might find themselves there as well. Mm-hmm. Um and I think in both the documentary and also uh in your book, both of you did that. And mm-hmm. so maybe we could just start with um with story, uh if that's cool with with you two. Uh so maybe we can even go like basic, like how did you all meet? Where did all, where did it all begin?
2: (laughs) Yeah. See, this is why I go back to the beginning when someone asks the question because we met in second grade. And so there's like not a lot before that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Emerging from the right.
2: (laughs) Uh, So yeah, we, we, uh, grew up together in the same grade school, uh, Mm -hmm. a Christian school in Des Moines, Iowa, and knew each other since second grade. Uh, Became best friends, I would say, in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. My perception, I don't know. Okay. You were my best friend. So, um, and then we ended up started dating in high school as uh, juniors in high school.
1: You always have to say at the junior prom.
2: At the junior prom.
1: So, I mean, that's real love right
2: there. (laughs) (laughs) How cliche. You could not get any more cliche.
1: Don't worry. It gets less cliche as we go on.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, starts real cliche. Uh, yeah, and then got married at 21. You know, both had really have both were heavily involved in the church um, scene, and got married at 21. Um,
1: In a highly evangelical context, I think that's an important.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Katie was a youth associate for a church at that point in time, Mm -hmm. or after we graduated, I guess. Um, yeah, and a lot of the story is about your, uh, evangelical experience between, <laughs> between then and now. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sure uh, I think we walked this very, um, exemplary Christian evangelical married life to the point that like Parents would bring us their kids and be like, tell our kids what to do about getting married when they're 16. And we're like, oh, okay, you know, because we're like, okay, we could, I guess we could do that, you know. And so we lived in this very heteronormative, world in a very heteronormative way. We started having babies and they kept coming. So we were like, okay, great. Uh, we ended up adopting, uh, after we had our third biological child, we ended up adopting from China and, uh, he fits right in between our second and third biological child. If that makes sense.
2: (laughs) So it's one, two, he's in the middle. middle
1: Yeah. And then, um, Throughout all of that, it was like a flashbang, right, of so much happening at one time, having babies and bringing home um, a child with uh, a disability, and also who was three and a half years old and needed a lot of care, and also being a woman in in an evangelical context who was doing ministry, uh, kind of fighting for my right to do ministry, because I just love people. I love Jesus. I want to, you know, be in that context. And um, in that time, I think we both started to explore parts of ourselves because we were coming undone. (laughs) We, we were stressed to the max. We love our children so much and they were teaching us so much. Um, and we wanted to be able to be truly ourselves for them. And I think we realized, we were not living that authentic life. And so Nia came to me uh, and expressed a need to kind of go through a gender journey. And we walked that road and meanwhile got pregnant with our fifth child. And then Nia, we had that child and then Nia came out shortly thereafter. So Nia is a transgender woman. Yeah. <laughs> and we are living a wonderful, healthy not cliché. Not cliché, but um just like a life full of love and exactly who we are and still discovering who that is. Yeah. Which is hard and good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well thank you so much uh for sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh it's yeah, and there's so I mean there's so many um so many places to go, but I think within your within your book you kind of, you use this concentric circle model Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um, that I found to be uh, very helpful. And actually I wanna, um, well, I'll put a pin in it. I took a note. I wanna tell you guys a story about how this uh, challenged me a little bit um, at some point, but I wanna continue with this circle thing for a second. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And cause I I found the the concentric circle bit uh, very helpful, a helpful tool. Um, And if I understand it correctly, um, it's basically a model for walking through, um, something like, uh, coming out or, um, these kind of things. And so there was like the individual circle in the middle, then uh-huh. the family and then community. Um, and kind of, I guess, throughout the book, you, you kind of go through each of the circles and e- explain what that stage is, how it works, etc. And so I thought maybe that could be a helpful, um, kind of guiding thing <laughs> for, right. for our conversation yeah if we um maybe want to talk about like okay so here's here's the story now from like an individual perspective um what has the journey been like for you yeah 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 where do we start <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah. I'm big and big and open-ended so you know yeah so <laughs>
2: I think, from the perspective of the person who was coming out first and mm-hmm. discovering their queer identity, um there was a, a intense need out of the gate. You know, after I told Katie what was going on, there was an intense need out of the gate to find other people outside of Katie to process with
1: and let's let's can we sorry, yeah, can we um differentiate? between the letting in time that you told me and the coming out Sure, sure,
0: yeah. Yeah,
2: so there was a moment where I expressed the the need to explore gender in a different way, and we call that the letting in. So I let Katie in on that journey while I was still discovering myself in that moment. Um, And then a couple years later, I got to the point with therapy and self-discovery that I was, I, I'm transgender. That's where I got. And I came to Katie and said, I am trans. And, and that's more of a coming out, right? Like I have now formed this identity that I'm more certain of. And I wanted to share that with you. So there was a period there where um, it was kind of between her and I truly uh, and, after that, though, as soon as I said, you know, I'm trans and um, this is something, <laughs> it's not nothing, uh, I found it, I found a need to have a support outside of Katie, because um, as we talk about in the book, when something like this happens, both people are going through it. A lot of times we think it's the trans person who's transitioning, but the, the spouse is sitting there also going through something major. And so... I found folks outside of Katie who I could uh, have support and who could support me and who would protect me um, as I continued to come out in a larger capacity, because as some of your listeners might know, when you come out in an evangelical circle, uh, it flows downhill. Uh, (laughs) Can I say shit?
0: (laughs) Okay. <laughs> yes. All, all of the, uh, all swear down words downhill. are on the table. All words are
2: welcome. <laughs> the ship the flows downhill and yeah. <laughs> you know, having that circle around you to, uh, support inward, uh, support toward the middle of that circle and push outward, uh, for acceptance for, you know, kind of blocking some of that other stuff, um, is super helpful. And then on top of that, when you're looking at these circles, the the center person is going through the change. So in my circle, I'm the center, but in Katie's circle, she's the center, uh, not me. So she has her own circle and has her own need to process outside of me and have the same protection and the same support. And you can talk more about what that looked like for you. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. We really talk a lot about self-differentiation. We believe strongly that as we go through, um, as anyone goes through any major change in their life, especially when it has to do with two people who have been together for 20 years, that uh, you're kind of wrapped around each other. And so the need to differentiate comes first, which is very, very difficult. Um, Especially when you are still, like, I was just telling Nia earlier today, like, still obsessed with that person. (laughs) deal um but I think I am that way still because I differentiated myself from you so once we got into our own individual circles then we were able to build these support systems around us so uh, we went into these larger circles of family and friends and when we say family and friends we really mean chosen family and close friends who respect your identity and respect your journey. So people who I did not feel comfortable that would that I did not know 100% would respect who I am and my love for Nia, I did not let them in on what was going on. And some people I did, my sister I let in right away. I mean almost almost right away. Um and this is why is because my sister never asked if we were going to stay married. She never asked if uh like I was upset or having like a major issue. She knew from the very beginning, they will stay together and Katie will love Nia for the rest of her life. She never had to ask that question so she could support me from the get and didn't make me feel like I had to answer her questions while answering my own questions. And that's the beauty of the circle because as Nia said, support comes in and compounds and then shit dissipates. <laughs> Stress goes out. And this, I do want to point out, is uh, something called Ring Theory by Silken and Goldman. It's not something we made up, but it is something we cling to pretty hard uh, still in our life to set boundaries.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, that's so interesting. That was, that was really helpful for me, the self-differentiation piece that you just laid out. That was something that, I hadn't necessarily thought of before was um, like when you are within a relationship with somebody and then, um, you know, express like I'm transgender or maybe queer or whatever it may be. And that's kind of a change in the relationship. That is something that's like you were saying is, is experienced by both people. And that was really kind of helpful for me um, just because even in my own experience, so um, my, I have two brothers, one of them identifies as gay and one of them as uh pansexual, if he's forced to use a label, but mostly he's just like, leave me alone. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so like seeing their journey, um, was just like, I, I don't know. It was, I didn't, um, think as much as the relational piece because my brother, like Jordan was in seventh grade when he came out. And Justin never really like I don't know, I like can't like had like an official kind of coming out thing, which is interesting. I've had lots of conversations with him about how um like he doesn't he didn't feel like that's something that he wanted to just have to do. He was just like, this is just me and kind of thing. So that anyway, all that to say it was helpful. And where that actual the individual piece actually challenged me a bit um, was so my wife and i have been having some kind of conversations um recently and she asked me like just out of the blue um actually i think it, it stemmed because um i painted my fingernails black and she was like well do you think you would ever I, like identify yourself as queer and at i was in bed and I was like i'm i don't want to think about this right now like what and so um anyway that like thought kind of hit me and I was like huh And then this kind of individual piece actually challenged me a bit because I was like, that's actually kind of a scary question to ask myself. I don't know. And Mm -hmm. so then to kind of be honest with oneself and um, start to ask those kind of questions. And for me, I mean, it's as best as I can tell, um, I I would say, no, I very much am attracted to, um, to women, to my wife, these kind of things. But even asking that was like terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know, That sounds kind of trite because like it's, um, I don't know, that's my experience. I'm not trying to like compare or something like that, but um, I don't know. It pushed me um, a bit. And I I thought that was an an interesting kind of vulnerable space to kind of walk into. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that, if you have any thoughts about something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
2: first of all, that's a a terrifying question (laughs) to ask yourself. Yeah am I different than I think I am, you know? And, and if the answer is yes, then there's a, a ton of work, a ton of change that could possibly happen there. You know, there's a lot of stuff with one simple question. So it's, it's a scary question Mm -hmm. and it's one that is necessary to know yourself, not just, you know, sexuality and gender, but in general, like we can't know ourselves unless we asked that question of ourselves.
1: Oh yeah. And You know, I mean, kudos to your wife for asking you that, because also like, hello, that's terrifying also for her, I think, too, you know, to be able to ask that question. But also speaks so much to your relationship of just vulnerability between you two that you're already, you know, that you're thinking about asking those things and being open with each other about that, because that is you know, the stepping stones of really deep love is knowing each other very well and knowing ourselves very well. And I don't think it sounds trite at all. It's an, it's an interesting question to ask yourself. And it's okay to be scared when you do ask yourself that. Because when Nia came out, I, for the very first time in my life, was confronted with that question of, am I queer? Nia is the first person, first and only person I've ever kissed. She's the first and only person I've ever slept with. She is the first and only person I've ever had a really strong relationship with since I was 17. I never had to think about my own gender or sexuality because I was like wildly in love with the person who I was with. And so Nia made the, I, I say made a choice, but you didn't really like, but you got to control your journey a little bit. But when Nia came out to me, I had to ask myself that question. And that was hard because I I was like, I don't know if I'm ready to answer this question. (laughs) And I went to my therapist and I said, what am I going to do? I... I know I want to be with Nia, but I know I'm not a lesbian. Hilarious to say. Um, And so what do I do? And she was like, well, here's some ideas. Like, maybe you could have an open marriage. Maybe you could divorce and still live amicably. Maybe you could do this and that. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. All of these possibilities came into my mind that I hadn't thought of, which then allowed me to be expansive enough to then start walking the road to narrowing it down to who I really am. But I had to go way, way, way out to like, do I want an open polyamorous relationship? That is not one thing that I can handle emotionally. So no. <laughs> and then keep, you know, working towards what feels right. And I'm I'm with your brother. I would say I do not like a label. I say ambiguously queer because I still don't know, you know?
2: And I say... Don't people, <laughs> people can't can, can see on a podcast but like not ambiguous there's nothing ambiguous <laughs> really <never had>
0: <laughs> uh yeah it's just i don't know that it, it's so interesting and i think for me one thing that um i have learned so much from um just meeting and growing friends, not just like with my brothers, but with um, other people within the queer community is just, I have such a deep respect for the level of honesty and vulnerability that one is able to have with <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Because I feel like a lot of people don't fucking do that. Like they don't have the guts to, to do that, to be honest and to live embodied like fully as who they are. And so for me, it's always like, why, like, it's annoying that the queer community gets picked on. Cause I'm like, there, that's kind of fucking crazy to me. Like it's, it's, there's so much bravery there. And I, I, um, I don't know. I, I just have so much respect for it. So, um, it, and again, even just from the, the literal sliver of fear that went down my spine when Noel was like, do, would you ever identify as queer? Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's powerful to me. So um, yeah, thank, thank you guys both for sharing your story in that regard. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, <clears throat> when it comes to, so if we were to maybe shuffle a little bit into from the individual into the kind of like family realm, mm-hmm. um, which I know uh, for my siblings, their story um, is that both of my parents, even though they didn't really understand, um, they just were kind of like, these are my kids and I love them. And I know that's not everybody's story, um, and that can be rough. And um, you've already used language of like chosen family and things like this. So I'm just curious, once uh, within the family kind of sector, what maybe thoughts or wisdom might you have to to share with people?
1: Mm-hmm. I think on the individual, you should speak to the individual.
2: There's so much. What what part? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think you know this idea of the constellations of people
2: sure yeah
1: we alluded to a little bit yeah. but yeah
2: so i mean chosen family um when letting people in on that journey before it, it it's fully formed i mean there were a few people that that i did that with um the the key is safe space i mean a mm-hmm. safe space to grow and be cultivated and i think the story that you just relayed like shows that that is kind of within your own marriage. And it it was for Katie and I, and that's how we were able to ask these questions. But I had a group of friends who in the book we call stars and I let them in on that journey and and, and they were all over my kind of social network. Um, But I knew they were safe. And then when I came out to folks, that I knew or thought, um, again, judgments, um, talk a little bit about in the book, it's really hard to make judgments on uh, on people if they're going to be supportive or not, but maybe who I thought might not be supportive and who turned out not to be supportive. Then I would pull those circles of stars, those people that I had already cultivated in closer because those boundaries had to get set and, and had to push out on some of these other folks, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, you immediately become a queer family when somebody comes out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, our family and our kids immediately became queer when I came out.
1: Queer family. Queer
2: family, yes. Uh, My parents' family, as much as, you know, we can't admit this, like they have a queer family because they have a queer family member. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it is hard. You have to go, oh, no, like I have to look at beliefs. I have to look at all of these things in order to accept my child, my, my whomever. And if you can't do those things, then it makes it really hard and and boundaries have to start being built, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah. I think you said something really good. Yeah. Just then of like this place to, to be safe and nurtured because that is what family is. And that is so true. That's what every really good, healthy parent tries to provide for their children as a safe place to grow and as adults or even as you know um young people trying to figure out who we are we we are allowed to make that space for ourselves if we haven't found it in our immediate circle of influence, that's okay. You know, we're allowed to find safe adults and we're allowed to find safe friends and we're allowed to find other family members and books and magazines and doctors that we didn't even know existed maybe (laughs) that make us feel safe and resonate with us. And that's how we start to create this sense of found family this um sense of safety so that when things do get tough, or if they do, God forbid, that there's a safe place for us to land. We want to be a soft landing pad for each other as we go through this very transformative experience. Uh
0: did either of you find it all like during during this kind of, you know, time journey, whatever language is you feel most appropriate like um that that kind of uh, group of stars or or found family that they can kind of maybe shift and change over time um because i just think about people who's been um you know meaningful in the lives of my brothers and some of it has stayed the same but it also seems like there's been almost like a time and place for some different stars or, or, you know, found family that kind of come in uh, along the way, have you had like a similar experience at all?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I'd like to definitely say one for sure, which has cha- changed one way, changed another way and changed back. Are my own parents. Um, when Nia came out rightfully. So I think my parents, I don't want to speak for them, but my perception of how they felt was fear. That's that's what I felt from them. I can't say that's what they felt, um, but that's what I felt they were projecting was fear. And so for me, that did not feel like a safe place to take my questions and my wanderings and my need for safety and support. It didn't feel like the right place to take it. And so we had to put up a boundary. And my sister really acted as like a liaison to kind of help ease the tension. We stayed in relationship, but there was tension and she helped ease that tension. She became that buffer so that we could still be in relationship, but we didn't have to go so deep with each other because my parents could ask my sister the questions that they had and my sister could say, Hey, you need to get on board here. And, and, in that way that. my sister took that responsibility off of me and my parents still had somewhere to go. And now over time, the relationship between my uh, my parents and us has, has begun to knit back together again because my sister built this beautiful bridge that kept us connected to one another and they were willing to hold on to one end of it. And we were willing to hold on to one end of it. So now I would say they're in that circle of family for sure. It's d- different, differing levels at different times and for different needs and different parts of our life, but they are a very strong part of our life.
2: Yeah. And I mean, my answer to that question is absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> because people change. Like, if people are willing to explore themselves and explore who they are, they, can change in one way, you know, for good or for, for bad necessarily in relationship. And so if there's change in people, there will always be that change and shifting in those, you know, those mm-hmm. supports around.
1: Well, and I think it's important to mention, I'm sorry. I didn't want to like no, go ahead, steamroll you because you gave me, you made me think of something. Yeah. <laughs> um. Now, if I can remember Uh-oh. it now, <laughs> I think you said people change and it can, you know, morph because people's needs change. Their need for safety, like you were saying, a need to not be fearful because fear makes us feel unsafe, right? Um, a need to reconnect, uh, a need to have a boundary, you know, like all, people's needs change all the time. And it's not necessarily because of us. It's because they're human beings. We're all human beings living in a human world. And sometimes we just can't right now. You know, and sometimes we super can right now. And I think if we can understand that about one another, then it's less like, why won't you do this for me? And more like, I understand that you need your time and space. And I'm willing to give that to you because I want you to grow. And I want me to grow too.
0: Yeah. uh, (laughs) An example that came to me or to mind to me as you both were speaking was um, my grandfather when um, my brother first uh, it came out so long ago um he's shoot Jordan's gonna be mad that I don't remember how old he is he's a couple <laughs> years younger than me <laughs> I think I have like three years on him so he's like 26 27 um but I remember him and my grandfather were really close they used to go fishing together and like all this kind of stuff um camping. And my grandfather felt like, oh, like, well, now since Jordan's gay, we can't do fishing and camping anymore because that's not what gay people do kind of thing. Like that was his experience. And he kind of um he never, I would never say he turned away, but there was definitely kind of like an awkwardness, like a cold shoulderness. Um, and he really kind of you could see him struggle with it. And then randomly, um, one day we're hanging out, eating dinner, and um, my grandfather's just starts talking. He was like, you know, so we were at church, and they started talking about um, a gay couple in the church, and if they were going to let them stay in, and I got really upset, and I told them, all you guys do is talk about how Jesus loves everybody, and now you're saying he doesn't love them? That's bullshit. And uh, he got up and left. And all of us were just like stunned because we were like, wait a minute, when, when did this flip for you in your mind? <laughs> like when, when, and I think ultimately what it was, was just the embodied experience of his willingness, yeah. just to stick around. And um, I don't know, it was a really interesting experience. We're all very confused, but he just kind of <laughs> like one day, just like it was different. <laughs> oh, that's so great. What a great story. Lovely. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's intriguing because, um, yeah, I, anyway, but I'm I'm curious because you had mentioned, um, Katie, that you, uh, you had worked in the church before. And actually, there's a bit in the documentary uh, when you were talking about the kind of your um, how much you miss the church. And that part I felt deeply. Um, I am no. Well, I work at a church now, which is a whole weird thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't attend there or any church, but I've been administ- doing administrative work for a church. Um, but I think when it comes to the community aspect or the, even the chosen family aspect, one thing when something um, like this happens, or maybe people experience deconstruction, whatever, they lose that kind of church community. And yeah. I think that's a particularly nefarious and difficult thing because those are supposed to be the people that you can go to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so to whatever level you're comfortable speaking about that, I'd be really curious, just the, yeah. What, what was that kind of church experience like? And maybe even where are you with the kind of Mm churchy stuff today?
1: The churchy stuff.
0: Yeah, um, the, opportunities. the
1: churchy opportunities
0: yeah um, uh the once in a lifetime giving opportunities and yeah.
1: all that all but, those yeah. hours you get to work yes. for us hurrah yeah. right uh, no I I want to be very careful and kind to the to the container that we grew up in because while it did give us some heartache and Okay, some heartache.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, it also did introduce us to a very deep kind of love, which is the love of Jesus, which I'm very thankful for. And and we saw that embodied in people in, in every church context that we were in. There were amazing people doing amazing things and loving amazingly well, of course. And And I would never say otherwise. Where there started to become a problem was at the systems level, where the system of the church had problems from the get. The system of the church had a problem with the fact that I was a woman who could teach. They were like, you can teach kids. And I was like, okay. And then they were like, you could teach youth. And I was like, okay. And they were like, but not men over 18. And I was like, well, there's a lot of kids over 18 in our youth group. And they're like, oh, okay, men over 18, but only 18. You know, and so it was like this weird moving yardstick all the time of like, am I ever going to be allowed to do anything? And to the credit of the system, I pushed enough (laughs) that it got to a place where I was preaching and teaching on a regular basis. Um, which I love. I just love. And, you know, the thing that I love about preaching is it's such a communal experience. And so when I get to preach, I see people (laughs) and you can see them like connect and long and meet, you know, and that's, that's the greatest thing about worship too. It's lovely to see that kind of communal experience. So when all of a sudden that goes away. We had a beautiful church community where there were lots of people who supported us. And those people became a lot of our chosen family. But the system of the church did not love me as coming out and the way that it affected my theology because my theology needed to become more open and expansive. And then I wanted to preach that open and expansiveness (laughs) because I believe it and it's true and real. And the system was not prepared to hold that. And I I can't blame the system because I think I was operating in a system that was not for me, you know? And I think a lot of us have operated in a system that's not for us, but we were given that as kids. We don't really know where else to go with it. And so when that all went away, I mourned. And what you see in the documentary is real life, like the first time someone had asked me, and I would say three, four years of legit mourning. I did not know what to do with myself. I had lost my career, which never paid me, but it was still my vocation. Um, I had lost parts of myself that I really loved and I had lost this really, uh, beautiful communal connection with God. And so mourning and grief was a big part of the process. And I'm not sure that we make enough space for that especially when people are deconstructing we're either really mad you know the system gets really mad or we're like oh great and let's keep going and you're like no no, no. I'm dying I'm literally dying because it feels like a death it does and um I think and the only way to make space for it is to make space because you can't do that journey for anybody It it is not exactly like transitioning but it's so similar because I could not transition for Nia, you know, she had to do that. It was so hard to just step back and make the space for her to make those decisions and support her along the way. And I think that the relationship that I had with the church was the same way. I needed space to mourn and I needed space to understand what my true spirituality is. And I have been getting a lot of questions of like, have you found a new church? Where's your new church? What, what are you doing for church? And lots of beautiful Facebook messages and Instagram messages like, oh, come to our church because it's great. And I'm like, these are beautiful messages from lovely people. And my brain is going, this is wonderful. And my body's going, hail to the now, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think a lot of people can understand. Um, but this is what I will say is coming to understand where the church resides kind of comes back to what the church told me anyway, which is that the church is the people. It's just all people, not just the select few. So when I am in my home, I am in church with my family. When I cross the threshold of my home to go outside, I I'm experiencing God, I'm experiencing worship, I'm experiencing community, I'm experiencing I'm doing that all now, except it doesn't have all the rules that go with it. And I'm allowed to love people exactly the way I want to love them and receive love from them in exactly the way that I need it. And I'm not obligated to them, I just want to love them, and vice versa. That's church, right?
2: <laughs> and, and I just I just have to say one thing here, like. For the people who are inviting Katie to church, y'all need to invite her to preach at your church
0: because you just heard it right there.
2: I
1: mean, I would do it.
0: <laughs> yes, totally. No, I was I was going to say it. There we go. We just had a kick-ass sermon right here on the Rethinking Faith.
1: <laughs> I mean, I've got to preach wherever you put me. You put my microphone in front of me. I'm going to do it.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. I love it. Yeah, there's such I I don't know. I'm always just so curious about how that uh question lands for people because it is um I mean the the how you just described the kind of like it sounds exciting when someone invites you, but your body's just like kind of middle fingers. Um again, my story totally different. I deconstructed and walked away from vocational ministry for like theological reasons, <laughs> like oh. existential crisis type stuff. Um I mean, I did experience like, um, like very real abuse and like did therapy and all these kind of things. Um, So I don't want to, you know, say my experience is is identical, but um, that kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, almost like a longing for community, but also at the same time, like, you know, I don't really, I don't really know kind of thing. Um, I mean, it was huge. I, just i've been what like a little over maybe four months now as a parish administrator in a tiny little episcopal church uh here in maryland um that somehow i've got a job at like i'm still confused how i'm working there to be honest (laughs) but the rector the priest derek is awesome um and it's it's been interesting it's been a place where i just uh i'm i'm there monday through friday I I've never once attended a service. Um, but I still kind of feel like I'm cheating, like I'm getting some of that the benefits from the community piece without like you know what I mean, like fully doing it. So it's it's been interesting. Um, I
1: think that a lot of us feel that way. Like like we're cheating.
0: But (laughs) that's not
1: cheating, that's living. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because we were we we were so conditioned and taught that this is what community what community, you know, quote unquote looks like that when we find it other places and we feel that feeling, we're like, oh no, I shouldn't be feeling it here, or this is like a facsimile of what community is. That is not true. What you're feeling is actually like camaraderie, friendship, love. That's great. You don't have to sit in a pew for that is that cheating
0: yeah yeah huh um (laughs) yes amen uh but that doesn't yeah keep church doors open anyway um no
1: it definitely doesn't but
0: (laughs) talking shit i shouldn't do that um (laughs) but yeah so all right with the like family community thing um one part of the documentary that just like brought me so much joy like laughed out loud smiled um was when they asked uh, your kids about <laughs> their experience and i'm just i'm i'm curious cuz i know there's probably listeners asking like oh well what was this experience like um for for your children um especially because there's so much just like fear mongering and bullshit that I don't have to explain to either one of you in Oops. the news and the rhetoric and all this kind of stuff um, that it was just so I think that's part of why it brought me so much joy <laughs> to, hear, <laughs> to hear your children speak so i was just wondering um, if you'd be willing to maybe share a bit of uh, that experience with us as well
2: yeah I, I think <clears throat> if I can take a step back before we kind of talked or maybe it was after we talked to them but one of the things that really helped the whole my whole conversation with them was a friend asking mm-hmm. what does this look like to be their mom instead of their dad? What do you lose not being their?" I think she framed it. What do yeah. you lose not being their dad anymore? Mm-hmm. And I had to stop and, and go, yeah, what, what, what are they losing? Like what, what am I, you know, everybody wants to frame it. What are you taking away from your, your child? And and this friend was beautiful was not saying it like that, but it, it does have a negative connotation. I sat there and I wrote down, like, okay, I can still teach my sons to shave because I've gone through that experience. I, I can still go fishing, play ball, you know, all the quintessential dad things. And also, Katie likes to do all of these things too. And so, like, maybe not fishing. shave
1: my face. I love it.
2: <laughs> maybe not fishing. I, I do
1: not shave my face.
2: Or maybe <laughs> fishing and sports ball. Maybe not. But like,
1: not sports ball.
2: Like all these activities are not gendered inherently, right? And so working through that was like, oh, they're losing nothing. And I and, and I am not any different as a mom that I am as a dad, um, except I get to be myself, which makes me a better parent. And I'm not hiding something. And I can be more nurturing because that's who I am and was trying to put on a mask and all sorts of different things. So in a positive way, I was able to see that. And then when we started interacting with our kids around this, I, I was still like, I don't know what to tell them because I, I don't feel any different. You know, I, I don't want them to think anything different is changing, but obviously something's going to change. Like they are going to be in a queer family inherently. And so Katie drew this wonderful picture that's depicted in the film. Um, the piece they missed in the film was, you know, we're talking about bodies and and gender identity and how sometimes they match and sometimes they don't. Um, and in in her actual drawing, she put soul at the bottom um, to show the kids like it doesn't really matter what's on the outside um, and how that works with the inside. Everybody is human, and everybody has a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that explanation to a nine year old who time. hasn't built the boxes yet <laughs> is mm-hmm. like, cool. Let's do it. Yeah, no big deal. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I totally agree. I just uh, it's so funny that you ask this because I will just say this little thing and then I'll talk about the kids. But I saw our there was an article for our for the documentary up the other day and it was right next to an article by I will say his name, Matt Walsh, who it was right next to it. And it said Matt Walsh thinks that uh, it is worse for a child to be reared by gay parents than it is for them to lose a limb. And I thought to myself, excuse me, Matt Walsh, have you ever met a child, one without a limb and one with gay parents? Because we have a child with a disability who has gay parents and he's amazing. (laughs) It's ludicrous to think that either of those things makes any child less than. Does it complicate their life? Maybe. Does it make them incredible people? Not necessarily. (laughs) But does it give. It doesn't do anything but allow them to be loved like any other human being. Neither of those things matter.
2: And, okay. yeah, and one of the things that I think hopefully people can can feel and see in the the documentary, um, and we heard it from all of the other couples who who were in the documentary as well, uh, was this concept of safe space, which we've already talked about, mm-hmm. and creating a safe space for people to grow and be loved. And I, I'm not going to say that queer love is better than straight love, but it's different in that we have to work so hard to love ourselves first and create that safe space for ourselves that it, it it comes more naturally to provide that for our children. And hopefully people can see that in the film, that the kids have this wonderfully safe space that they can explore and be themselves and, you know, and. Just be whoever they want to be because they can.
1: Yeah. When our daughter was three, she went to three or four. She went to um, Sunday school. And this is when my theology completely changed. She brought home a green construction piece of paper with a heart drawn on it. And inside the heart, it said, when you love, that is the goodness and I picked it up and I looked at it and I was like, I'm done. Like, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. Yeah. This is it. It's all right here, summed up by this four-year-old. And that that is what is so beautiful. Our kids taught us how to love them and how to love ourselves yeah. because we listen to them and and we <laughs> respond. But come on, when you love, that's the goodness. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. The
2: questions these kids ask, like before we, before I was, I came out to myself, like the questions they're asking with such simplicity and honestly, Mm -hmm. honesty, like it creates this a safe space in and of itself for us to to be able to ask ourselves those questions, which is so beautiful. You know, I'm I'm sitting here going like, we created a safe space for our kids, which we do, but they did it for us first. Yeah, um, which is miraculous.
1: (laughs) really
0: is yeah it's it's so beautiful and I think too it's one thing that um you know I used to kind of just be like oh that's nice Jesus that you say things like that but the whole bit about like becoming like a child Mm -hmm. I think there really is such deep wisdom in that and it's something that I've come to appreciate more um even as an adult like I remember I had an experience uh recently we went um to the beach for like an extended weekend um, with another couple friend of ours. And we're sitting on the beach and there was this little girl, maybe three or four years old. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, life and all the bills I have to pay or, you know, these existential crises that I seem to have on a regular basis. (laughs) And (laughs) to like, look over and see this child just playing and, doing whatever it is that a child does <laughs> and throwing sand and being like carefree, like it broke me. I cried on the beach, just like yeah. holy crap. Like the this, the childlike wisdom, I really think is something that um is beautiful. And like I said, I'm coming to uh appreciate a bit more. And like you said, the the simplicity and the the honesty um curiosity right and even to an extent something that um i mourn as i see kind of children grow up uh, even my sister who um so my sister is adopted um and she is you know we um got her when she was an an infant um like newborn basically and she is now 13 and doing things that 13 year olds do Mm And like part of watching like a child like that grow up is I mourn that loss of simplicity and honesty. um, Cause like the world just has a way of beating you up. Right. Or telling you this is what it means to be a boy. And this is what it means to be a girl, or this is what it means if you live in the South and have to build this or whatever it is. um. And so just, yeah, that wisdom from, children just seems so precious to me uh and like should be protected at all costs (laughs) kind of thing i like and and the heart uh sermon is is great (laughs) uh, hmm, hmm. all right well now that i my uh sermon about children is done um (laughs) forgive me um i think one thing that i really appreciated um about the book was how accessible it felt to me as somebody who um doesn't identify as queer but has queer friends and family members um and I learned things (laughs) um and I really appreciated that um you know there's the section where you kind of help um define terms and things like that and then also there's this really beautiful like toolkit that you have um in the back end of the book and so i'm i'm just curious um maybe as like a a way to kind of start to wrap us up what kind of um advice would you have or or maybe wisdom you'd want to share uh for somebody like me who doesn't identify as queer but um wants to be the best ally that you know i can Uh, Not just for my brothers, but also for my friends and family and, you know, whatever stranger I meet on the street. (laughs) Yeah. What might you say to, to something like that?
1: I love what Reverend Jackie Lewis says, who is a lovely, lovely person who was the first person that we ever introduced Nia to with her name and spoke such beautiful words to us at a Center for Action and Contemplation conference. And Reverend Jackie Lewis likes to say that she is not queer, but she has been queered by her queer friends. And I think when we think that way, instead of how can I be an ally or how can I be an advocate or accomplice even, which is a great word, but how can I be queered? Like, how am I willing to enter this How am I willing to become part of the queer family? Because as you know, it's like being, having an adoptive sibling. You don't have to be adopted to be part of an adoptive family and nobody, you're not going like, how do I be the best adoptive brother I can? You go, how can I be the best brother I can? You know? And I think that that is a really wonderful way that she expresses the way she enters into life with people. And we talk in the book, and it's one thing we have really, really found throughout our life is we would so much rather people be with us than before us. Because you can be for people all day long, and that can include pity. That can include anger, even. I mean, it can include sadness that's unwarranted. When you're for somebody, you feel a lot of things that maybe people don't need to be felt. But when you're with somebody... You know what to feel because you're right there with them. You're beside them walking the journey. And if you don't have somebody in your life to do that with, that's okay. Somebody else is going to come into your life and that's something that's yours to do. But for those of us in relationship with queer people, and I can't imagine that in the next 10 years, not every single person in the world will at least know one queer person. (laughs) Um, It's an opportunity. Being in relationship with queer people is an opportunity it's an invitation to a deeper love and to be queered ourselves. Now, you.
2: Now, me. I think it comes back to what you talked about at the beginning, which is story. Yeah. Um, and as somebody who is not queer, you're pushing into stories that aren't necessarily reflective of your sexuality or your gender but are reflective of the humanity that we share as queer people and straight people and non-binary and, and cisgender people and reading those stories and watching those stories and sharing those stories um, you, you start to become a part of them mm-hmm. and you, you start to draw people to you who, who have those as their stories. And you end up being with people instead of uh, for people and you start to see people as people instead of an issue, which is is a big problem right now. We are seen as an issue and it is just prohibiting us from seeing each other as people. And so I think, I mean, I think you've nailed it. It's story.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. That <laughs> I, I love that uh, language of like being cleared and um that, that with aspect, because I mean, for me, the, experientially um I can I mean I can still remember growing up being taught like about you know what evangelicals teach about LGBTQ stuff. Um but then and so and it was just an abstract idea for me at that point in my life. I didn't really have any friends that were queer my you know uh, well I always knew my brother but that was you know I cause I grew up with Jordan I knew but um anyway uh once it once, um, my brother came out and then it was no longer an abstract concept for me, but a relationship that I had in life that I think that makes all the difference. Um, and I, that's why I think like, I mean, recently I heard somebody say, or maybe I saw it as a meme or something, but it was basically like, before you speak about, you know, your thoughts on whatever, maybe it's race relations, um, or trans folks or or whatever like if you don't know somebody in that community then probably just don't say anything <laughs> and i thought that was really helpful because i was like yeah that, i mean the experience the relationship um really was transformative uh just experientially for myself because again it, it's humanizing and let like you were saying we have this tendency just to dehumanize um mm-hmm. And when we can just recognize, like we we're saying, we're all people just trying to figure out what the hell it means to be human and <laughs> be here.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's hard uh, enough.
0: <laughs> yes, it is hard enough. <laughs> and having, I don't know. So yes. Um, and, and also to just people in my life, like both of you who are willing to, uh, you know, answer my awkward questions or whatever. Um <laughs> and be in relationship and friendship. I deeply appreciate it. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. All, all the, the time. time. Uh, all right. <laughs> 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 uh, good deal. Well, um, is there any, like, maybe things you'd like to say just kind of in conclusion? Um, I'll, I mean, I'll be sure to, um, do all the link stuff. So have the the book mm-hmm. links, people can pre-order it, um, have the documentaries so people can watch it, all these kind of things. Um, but any kind of like concluding thoughts you might want to share? Slam poetry, um, <laughs> creative, <laughs> creative swear words that you've been ruminating Ooh. over, trying to figure out how to. <laughs> I probably
1: could have given you several of those quite yeah. a few
0: <laughs> uh,
2: Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that we're uh, not within the walls of the church, the, the regular swear words work just fine. So. <laughs> there
0: we go. <laughs> <laughs> true.
2: I think one of the things that we kind of wrap the book up on is, is talking about community and the symbiosis mm-hmm. of community. And I think it just is so important that we recognize how we lift each other up when we engage with each other in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we there's a lot of things in the world right now that are tough and continue to be tough and will continue to be tough. But each of us has that opportunity to lift the world up a little bit higher by engaging in that symbiosis mm-hmm. with one another.
1: Mm-hmm. Good one. You really like it. <laughs> I,
2: I went first because I wanted you to preach, preach it out.
1: <laughs> symbiosis is my favorite. I know, I took it. I love it so much. No, I love it. The thing that I would say is, you know, for your listeners, I know a lot of them are in deconstruction, you know, spaces. A lot of them are in reconstruction spaces. A lot of them are in those spaces that maybe they don't know what to do, right? Here's what is true, is that the world needs our stories. The world is interested in our story right now because... We are not a cliche anymore. <laughs> but there is somebody who needs to hear your heart and your journey. There's someone who needs to know if you're willing to speak it, your words. Because that's how we grow. That's how we get to symbiosis. Is not just by waiting for someone else to come along and do the work but to do the work when we're strong and capable because we've built up this wonderful chosen family, this wonderful safe space. And that's why we do that. So that we can do the work that we're meant to have in the world. And we don't rush it, but when we're ready, we speak the words.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Snaps.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well done. Well, thank you uh, both again so much. Uh, this has been fun and um, enjoyable. Hopefully, you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so Yeah, and um, like I said, I'll be sure to to link the things um, and also, yeah, I don't know. We're uh, well anyway. I'll save that for after I start after recording is done. Um, <laughs> uh, but I guess for now. Uh, listeners, as always, thank you so much for hanging out uh, with us today and go in peace.